Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and this is our next episode of Around the Scope, where we discuss pathologists' work in depth. And today we'll hear about forensic pathology. My guests are Dr. Nicole Jackson, an assistant medical examiner for Cook County in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Jackson is also an ASCP 2021 40 Under 40 honoree and a founder and board member of the newly formed Society of Black Pathologists. And we're joined with Dr. Jordan Taylor and Dr. Nicole Kroom. They are forensic pathology fellows at the King County Medical Examiner Office in Seattle, Washington. And they're also the hosts of the Dead Men Do Tell Tales podcast. You can find Dr. Jackson on Twitter at Nicole Jackson MD. Dr. Kroom is on Twitter at NICNAC363. And Dr. Taylor is on Twitter at Jet916. You can learn more about the Dead Men Do Tell Tales podcast on Twitter at Dead Men Do. I'm so glad to speak with all of you. Welcome to PathPod. Thanks for having us. Hi. Thanks Hi. for having us. Y'all have AC? I hear Seattle is blazing right now and no one has AC. We don't. Yeah, luckily yesterday was the hottest day it's supposed to be. So um, from here it only gets better. But our apartment doesn't have any cross ventilation. None. So it just traps all the heat. <laughs> so it's hotter mm. in here today than it is outside, actually. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> I'm literally doing a laundry because all of because most of my clothes don't get here for another couple days. So I have like three pairs of shorts and three tank tops that I've been like, Reusing, but I'm afraid to use the washer dryer until today because it's so hot that I don't want to heat up the apartment more. So I've just been like rewearing stuff, and finally I have them in the wash. But we're fine. I feel worse for our cats who yeah. have the Aww. fur that they cannot take on and off. <laughs> You'll see them walking through the back at some point, I'm sure, or meowing. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about forensic pathology with you folks. I I know uh, you guys have been very active on Twitter and podcasting talking about it so i'm really interested to get some really in-depth perspective just tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got interested in forensic pathology dr jackson do you want to start sure um so i'm dr jackson i currently work as an assistant medical examiner in cook county i actually switched into pathology from general surgery i was a general surgery intern uh did not love it and then during one of the cases I was a big cancer center. And one of our cases was in a Putz Jagers um, colon. So we were moving a lot of the bowel, small and large. Um, and the surgeon kept opening specimens in the OR. And I thought it was far more fascinating to see what was inside the bowel than, you know, managing fluids and surgeons attitudes. Um, so that was about halfway through the year. So I did a lot of research just into pathology. Um, and I switched specifically to do forensics. I thought it was a really good interface between what I loved about surgery and being able to use my hands, anatomy. I have a degree in public health and epidemiology. I thought it fit a lot more naturally with what I'm interested in in terms of research. Um, and then my father died suddenly at a young age when I was young. And so that stuck with me. And a large part of what we do is, you know, helping a lot of families with closure. Uh, I think a lot of people think most of what we do are homicides when actually a majority everywhere are those natural deaths that are unexpected. And so for all those reasons, I switched into forensics. Dr. Kroom? So um, I uh, grew up in California. Um, I went to UCLA for undergrad, UCSF for med school. Um, and I've wanted to be a forensic pathologist ever since I was in high school. Um, I was a huge fan of all of those uh, forensics type shows, so CSI Las Vegas. Uh, Law and Order SVU, all that jazz. Um, and there was a uh, forensic pathologist in my county, Dr. Bennett Amalu at the San Joaquin County um, Sheriff Coroner's Office. And I was shadowing a deputy coroner for the day as part of my senior project, which was on the CSI effect, which is um, when it's this uh, perceived difficulty in translating the reality of forensic science to juries after they've watched all of those TV shows that kind of have unrealistic expectations of your testimony. Um, 
And so uh, I was doing my research project on that, shadowing this deputy coroner, met Dr. Omalu, told him I was kind of interested in forensic pathology. He said I could come shadow him anytime I wanted. So I worked with him when I was on my breaks during undergrad. Um, and then decided that that was what I really wanted to do. And getting into medical school, nothing really swayed me. I think the closest was family medicine, which I think actually has a lot of ties to forensic pathology in that you have a very diverse patient population that you're dealing with. And you're kind of dealing with the whole human as well, since we're examining the whole human. And um, I also have that interest in public health, uh, as Dr. Jackson said, yeah, as Dr. Jackson said, um, most of the cases we do will be natural and accidental, not homicide. So I took a year off during medical school and also got an MPH. Mine is interdisciplinary just because I was really interested in taking a bunch of courses that didn't really fit into any other of the specific tracks, like a toxicology course and a zoonotic diseases course. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really got interested in forensic pathology for the story telling kind of aspect of it. Um, you're pretty much writing this last chapter in another human being's life to help explain what caused their death. And I, I really liked that about forensics. And Dr. Taylor? My story is definitely a little more uh, from early on. So I'm originally from Connecticut. Um, I went to MIT for undergrad and then up to Vermont for med school. But my grandfather is actually a pathologist. He graduated from UVM, which is the University of Vermont, back in 1953. And his father, so my great-grandfather, graduated from UVM med school in 1923. And then I graduated from there in 2017. So have a family history of that. Um, but my grandfather was a pathologist. And of course, that was back when it was old school pathology and you did everything and anything. There was no subspecialty. You just got whatever was across your table. My grandfather moved from Vermont down to Connecticut. And at the time, they didn't really have the subspecialty of forensic pathology, so they just kind of took whoever they had to do cases. So he was regularly on call for homicides and that kind of thing. And my mom would always tell me the story of them sitting around the dinner table and, like, uh, the call coming through and, like, him banging on the table and being like, don't they know not to get shot when I'm having dinner? Um, so he would have to get up and go and do the autopsies um, in the middle, like, middle of the night whenever so he so I grew up with the stories of him and you know there was some murder that he did the autopsy for of somebody that got stabbed like 23 times or something I can't remember the number but he'd always tell the story and there's clippings and there's a picture of him testifying at trial so I kind of had that background and then of course pop culture as Nicole said <laughs> CSI Crossing, oh, Jordan. Crossing, <laughs> crossing Jordan especially because it shares my name and it's Boston which is where I went to undergrad so a lot of those things combined, I was really interested and I was pretty much sure I was going to do it. I actually found my old high school yearbook that said I wanted to be a forensic pathologist in it. Um, so it's been a long time. Um, and then I went to, um, in undergrad, I worked on the ambulance. So emergency medicine was definitely kind of of interest to me. And then I went to med school, but I couldn't really ever kick the forensic pathology bug. And the pathologist at the University of Vermont are amazing and they're really good teachers and they teach a lot of like the first year coursework so I got to know them and they were just awesome people and they're the medical examiner in Vermont is actually in UVM in the hospital it like their morgue is attached so you got to spend a lot of time there and I did a fourth year month-long rotation at the medical examiners and just got to do a bunch of autopsies and all that other stuff go to scenes etc so you know, I knew I wanted to do it, and I tried to kick the habit, but I couldn't quite do it. Um, and then I went to out to UCSF for um, for residency. Of course, everybody tries to convince you to do their specialty <laughs> because it's better than what you want to do, um, especially cytopathology. They kept pulling me to cytopath, and if I wasn't doing forensics, it would probably be cytopath. Um, but yeah, I could never quite kick the habit, and luckily we found a program that took both of us which so we can oh and Nicole didn't say so about two years ago now Nicole and I since we're both going into forensics we decided that we wanted to start a podcast together and so we've had two years in San Francisco and now at least one year here to continue our podcast on forensic pathology related topics so we got to kind of dive into forensics learning wise teaching self-teaching wise in the past couple of years through that so kind of all built on itself. Yeah. 
And, and your podcast is amazing. The Dead Men Do Tell Tales podcast is really a fascinating podcast. I mean, Thank you guys you. have, it's kind of taken on a you know, range of aspects from kind of Mythbusters type things to explaining, like, like Dr. Crew mentioned a minute ago, explaining reality versus what's on television. I, it's been really fascinating to listen to. Yeah, that was one of the things that inspired us to do it is we both listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and they get a lot of the science parts of it wrong or like they'll say something about the autopsy procedure that they didn't understand. Like one was talking about how they went to like exhume a body exhume a body and the body had no organs in it and they're like like, where did they go go?" we're like that we (laughs) usually take them out (laughs) we put them back but then the morticians yeah exactly even if like we didn't take them out the morticians often take them out so i think or not they can take them out i should say so yeah it's just a lot of misconceptions yeah and them trying to explain like uh, how long changes and things like that and not really so that's part of why we got into it was to help educate the public about what we do and also there's a severe shortage in forensic pathology so just like you know putting that out there to get more people interested in the field and then (laughs) self-teaching it's actually been really i'm kind of curious since we're about to start forensics fellowship how much of a quote-unquote leg up we're going to have since we have done research for this so i don't know it'll be cool talk a little bit about how social media has played a role in communicating about forensic pathology not only to trainees but to the lay public Sure. So I think most of us are active. Uh, The main media is Twitter over the other outlets, I'd say. For me, um, most of the the positive interaction I've had, I think, has been mentoring. And I've found a lot of people out there, um, younger, uh, everywhere from undergrad, I'd say, to medical school who had some interest. And for whatever reason, there were some negative voices whispering in their ears saying they should do something else or they couldn't do forensics. And they um, and they've in, just inboxed me with those questions. And I've had long conversations saying, you can do it, you should do it, um, and kind of allaying any fears they have or hesitations and working with them to you know, write their personal statements to select the right programs um, and just making them realize you know, pathology is a field that goes unfilled every year. Forensics, um, likewise, not every fellowship fills every year. So there's absolutely room for you if you want that. Um, I feel like there's been less for me, education of the general population. I've had had really good conversations with, you know, advocates against uh, gun violence um, and, you know, different initiatives like that. But my role has been more mentoring via Twitter. Yeah, I I think that's so important. And like each of you mentioned in your stories of how you got interested in pathology, so many of the folks that we've talked to on PathPod talk about experiences they've had with other specialties and mentors they've had in pathology. And it just makes such a huge difference. And I think social media is really a great way to, to approach that. And since forensic pathology is a boarded subspecialty, maybe talk a little bit about what goes into attaining that board certification. Sure. So to be a board certified forensic pathologist, you need to complete a one-year fellowship following your residency in pathology. Uh, During the fellowship, you are required to complete at least 200 autopsy examinations. Um, That's the main requirement. There's some smaller ones. You should have exposure uh, with the crime lab going to scenes, Um, but that's the main requirement. And then after completion of your fellowship, you sit for your boards, just like you sit for your boards in anatomic and or clinical pathology. Um, I will say it is far easier. I definitely overstudied. It was very simple, which was very nice because it was during a pandemic and I didn't have that much time as a new attending. So uh, that was nice, but um, just completing your fellowship and doing your cases. Is our is the fellowship exam like with APCP like at the end of fellowship or is it after you're done with fellowship then you take it? It's at the so it's after you're done. They moved uh, like everyone everyone's board exams were moved this year. I believe we were supposed to have it. Don't quote me in July or August, and I think I wound up taking them in October. 
but you are done. So, and cool. depending on how you don't you have to study during residency right. or during right. And honestly, it was so straightforward enough. If you do your job as a fellow, you will be well prepared. That um, is very so that good. Nice. <laughs> I did not feel that way about APCP at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but it's nice. And some of my friends were able. Some of my co-fellows. So I had. There were four of us for fellowship. And we started at different times. So I was like, I need money. I need to start paying these loans off. I started pretty much immediately. Some people took a whole summer off. So they had time to travel, relax and study. Um, But yes, you don't have to do it while you're worried, learning about your life and your career. Yeah, I think our social media is more promotion for the podcast. But it's been interesting, the number of people that have connected to us that we like, I guess we were thinking more of the forensics, like the medical forensics community, but we've got a lot of reach outs from like the other aspects of forensics, like maybe the crime aspect um, and, or the, oh, what are they called? Uh, anthropology. An- yeah, anth- yeah, thank you, anthropology and other, like other subspecialties like that that are associated with forensics, but aren't necessarily in the medical forensics community that have connected through various platforms. So that's been kind of interesting for us on social media. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can use it more for education once we start fellowship. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping to transition to that more, especially now that we aren't studying for boards. <laughs> Dr. Jackson, you mentioned that a lot of the programs in forensic pathology, the fellowships don't fill. Do you have a sense of how many fellowship programs there are out there? How many spots are there? Oh, goodness. I used to know this back when I applied, which was like a second year resident. Um, I want to say shooting off the cuff, maybe around 40 to 50. Um, And each program has somewhere between one to four spots. And a lot of the programs that have multiple fellows, they alternate between either one and two a year or three and four a year. And the cool thing about forensics is we actually just started a match system. So I think the first match is going to be next year yeah next year but not all programs are in it necessarily 98 percent of programs signed up for it so it'll be a lot easier applying than i think it was for us yeah (laughs) because we similarly did it at like you know it was the second half of our second year of residency right so it was and some places were already full and there was there's no like general notification board that we could you know to look at to see when things were filling Um, like we were interested in applying to new mexico for example but when we looked at i think it was april of 20 would have been april 2019 and we're starting july 2021 they were already full in april 2019 so it was we didn't even have an option of applying there which was, you know, more than, which was essentially two and a half years, two and a quarter year before we're going to start. And it just makes it really hard to explore programs when you apparently have to start, like, I don't know, when you start residency. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a long lead time. I'm glad to hear that there's a match coming down the road. So for folks that are kind of early in their training, help them understand the difference between I mean, obviously, autopsy is a very important aspect of forensic pathology, but help them under, let's help the audience understand the difference between what someone does when they're a hospital pathologist doing an autopsy versus forensic pathology. How's that different? All right, I can go first. So I think most, not all, but most residents, their exposure um, primarily is the hospital-based autopsy. So usually, and this is going to be hospital-dependent, so usually the hospital autopsy um, it's, it's exclusive of, you know, cases the medical examiner has jurisdiction over. So it's going to be your natural deaths that usually occur in the hospital. Sometimes it's, so where I trained in New Orleans, um, we were still under mandate of the parish. So we autopsied everyone that died with HIV as well as uh, hepatitis C. Um, anyone that died within the first, I think, 48 hours of admission. And then after that, it was usually by request of the family. Um, so, you know, the, the hospital autopsies, it's not generating money for the hospital. So it's usually not something promoted. It's considered more of a quality assurance measure. Um, it can provide feedback for clinicians, for surgeons, um, and answers again to the family. Whereas when you switch over to the medical examiner slash coroner system, you have this interface with the law and jurisdictions. So things that fall under our jurisdiction, any potential homicide, any accidental death, an accident can be fall from a ladder, a motor vehicle collision, a drug overdose related death. 
um, suicides, and then the natural deaths that fall outside of medical care. So those are people that die at home um, unexpectedly. So either, you know, babies, children, they should, you know, you shouldn't really die unless you have a known uh, condition you were born with, you're expected to die. And then older individuals who might not have a regular primary care physician. So there's no one to sign their death certificate. So we take jurisdiction over those cases as well. UCSF, I feel like had a little more uh, stringent autopsy rules. It sounds so at UCSF essentially similar, like screening for the Emmy and if the Emmy doesn't want it, the hospital can take it. But we didn't do all that many hospital, uh, all that many autopsies at UCSF. Essentially, they would only do autopsies if the family requested it. So there was no default like this one's going to get an autopsy. So I think they do between like 15 and 30 a month at UCSF. But because UC also worked with the county hospital and the VA, we would do autopsies there. Um, but I feel like a lot of other residencies do a decent amount of autopsies. But I know at UCSF, they're just kind of minimizing the number you need and like the UCSF autopsy service doesn't do all that many anymore. Yeah, I, I guess I don't have a lot to compare it to because I haven't looked at hospital yeah. autopsy rates at other institutions, but I know overall hospital autopsy rates have been going down and there are a lot of factors behind that, um, including like improved imaging. So a lot of the yeah. time docs have a pretty good idea of why their patient has died. Um, so that's why it's usually at the request of the family. But there were a couple of cases where it was like the clinical team was like, um, this patient had a lot of kind of issues, but nothing that was overly emergent. So yeah. we don't know what actually killed them. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah. And I'd add, I feel like, so I was at LSU for residency and we did a lot of hospital autopsies. And I would say the overwhelming majority um, was really a communication issue between the care team and the family and the family not understanding what happened. Not that the clinician didn't know, but there was some communication break and we were able to fill in that um, bridge. For sure. Very, very similar. I feel like UC tried really hard to explain to families what was going on with autopsies, but I think a lot of families also didn't fully understand what was happening all the time too, which I feel like is a problem everywhere like people just don't understand what an autopsy really is so it's it's definitely a i feel like communication is key in everything but you know definitely an issue here too yeah so you mentioned the jurisdiction that surrounds a forensic autopsy you mentioned that there's medical examiner systems and coroner systems and i know training in texas it was highly variable by county whether there was a medical examiner or a justice of the peace that took jurisdiction um, can you talk a little bit about the differences between how a medical examiner system operates and how a coroner system operates? We can we can start, and then Dr. Jackson can fill in the holes that I'm sure we'll leave. Um, <laughs> in general, um, the way that I like to think about it is a coroner is an elected official, and a medical examiner is a doctor that is appointed by somebody in the government jurisdiction yeah. that you're covering. And every as um, as you pointed out. Every jurisdiction is totally different and every state runs differently. In New England, where I'm from, almost every state has a state medical examiner service. So there's a single ME or a single ME's office that runs the state. So in Vermont, for example, there are two medical examiners for the entire state of Vermont. Of course, it's a tiny little state. Um, but then out in California, in contrast, every county has its own option. It's kind of like pick and choose. So San Francisco, the city and county of San Francisco is medical examiner, but just across the bridge in Oakland, which is Alameda County, that's a coroner system. So in San Francisco, um, it is an appointed doctor that is a medical examiner and runs that jurisdiction. And then over the bridge in Alameda, it is a coroner who's an elected official that then hires forensic pathologists to do the autopsies. Um, some jurisdictions in California are what's called sheriff coroner, which is where the sheriff, who again is an elected official, is also the coroner. And then you can imagine that could run into issues with things like jail deaths, which again, depends on the county, how well your forensic pathologists work with your coroners. Um, but it's kind of piecemeal across the country. And there are definitely benefits to having coroner systems and benefits of having medical examiner systems. The main benefit of coroner being money and resource allocation. And the, what I think of as a main benefit of forensic pathology 
being a very well-trained person is running the system and ensuring that deaths are appropriately taken care of outside of an elected position, which you might have to like, you can imagine that there could be some conflicts of interest. Thank you. Although there are good coroner systems and bad medical examiner systems, very so it's true. very variable. Um, and we wouldn't be able to switch to an all-medical examiner system anyway because of the shortage of forensic pathologists that I talked a little bit about earlier. Yeah. We need about three times as many forensic pathologists to cover the entire United States if we were going to switch to the um, medical examiner system. We'll just all become three people. It'll be fine. Uh, that was pre-COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, um, so I agree with everything that um, they just said. I'd add in, oh, goodness. There's so, as they said, there's so much variability in all of this. Even So most medical examiners are forensic pathologists. There are a few that aren't. They can just be regular doctors. I think in Tennessee, there are a few um, that are medical examiners, but they're not forensic pathologists. You also have... Um, these hybrid medical examiner slash coroner's office like Las Vegas. Um, and as I said, you get the buy-in from the coroner, usually get uh, better funding. Um, and then a lot of the coroner's offices are often staffed by forensic pathologists. So in that case, the forensic pathologist does the autopsy. They write, you know, their basically their recommendation, their opinion, and then the coroner either agrees or disagrees. So it has the ultimate final say. It's, you know, it's very variable. I wish it was more uniform. Um, but as of now, that's what we have. Yeah, and there are actually a, a couple really good video documentary type oh, things yeah. for people who are interested. So PBS a while back released something called Postmortem Death Investigation in America, and it really goes in depth about the details and presents a bunch of cases where some of those conflicts of interest arose. And then John Oliver actually did a Last Week Tonight episode that was pretty good for something that's shorter and funnier. <laughs> I definitely set that out to my entire family being like, if you don't know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life, this is a good summary of what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. <laughs> So let's talk about the day-to-day. -day. What What is the day-to-day -day workflow for someone in forensic pathology? So it is variable. Like everything we do, it's variable. So you have a certain number of days per month. You will be cutting down in the post room doing autopsies. Um, your start time will vary by your office. Usually it's somewhere between 7.30 to 8.30 in the morning, depending on a combination of case complexity number of cases per day um, and just efficiency on um, and how fast you and your tech can get through a case you're done anywhere between 11 a.m and usually early afternoon at latest if it's a very heavy day so that's one day one to two days a week usually some offices you are on for a whole week and then you're off for multiple weeks that varies and then on days you're not in the post room you alternate between catching up on your paperwork so dictating or typing your cases, checking them for errors. Uh, mind you, you're juggling at times 20 to 50 cases and following up toxicology reports, your um, micro or infectious disease studying follows up with law enforcement, whether that's the FBI, uh, whether that's your local police department, um, whether you had to get a consult. So forensic anthropology, forensic odontology. Um, your pediatric cases, you might consult a pediatric pathologist or um, some of your deaths in younger individuals, you might do a cardio consult with a local hospital um, and then neuropathology as well. Um, certain days you might be in court all day for multiple days testifying or waiting to be called to testify. Um, and you just kind of cycle through all that. So it's nice. And then some people have the added um, bonus, if you will, if they like to teach. So a lot of people partner with local universities and medical centers and they teach or even um, criminalistic training programs. Um, and you kind of just rotate through that indefinitely. <laughs> And you might have mentioned this, I might have missed it, but we also get to go to scenes sometimes. Um, we usually when you're on call, whether it's, you know, a day rotation or a week rotation, at least from what I've seen, like almost a lot of homicides you'll go to. If there's another suspicious death, you'll often go to that scene. You definitely don't go to all scenes. I think that's another thing that is kind of in the media. Like you go to every single death that you see in your county and you would never have enough time or resources to do that. That's why you have... Um, 
death investigators that work with you to help do that and they're trained to you know take the appropriate pictures and do all that kind of thing and transport the body back in an appropriate and manner that you can collect evidence appropriately um, but you definitely don't go to every scene but that is one of the fun parts of the job that you you know the one reason you might get woke up in the middle of the night is for like a homicide or something like that so scenes are very dependent so most offices you don't go to most scenes if any i believe here the only scenes we are required to go to and of course you always have the option um, but between uh, you know chicago's huge it's a huge operation there's no feasible way you could go to any in every scene, let alone be notified of every scene. So here, I believe the one scene we would be required to go to is um, an officer involved shooting where the officer is shot and killed. Now, I know in Seattle, it's very different. They go to every homicide, but they have far less homicides than Chicago does. So that is much more feasible to digest and manage and work into your schedule and your sleep. Um, but scenes are very interesting. And usually, as a part of your training and fellowship, you're required to, and this is by office, a certain number of scenes. I believe in Miami, they're very big on going to scenes. I think their fellows, um, I think after five or certain cutoff time, they're kind of uh, required to go to at least all suspicious death scenes. Um, but it's a really good learning um, experience and opportunity. I definitely got to go to a couple in San Francisco. Um, there was like a stabbing I went to. There was a fish tank body dissolving incident that I went to like a bunch of like I feel like some of the more random stuff and sometimes I think it's less required and more like they call the medical examiner that's on call and is like do you want to come to this and it's kind of up to the person that's on call that they might want to come or not come based on need or interest for the particular randomness of the case and I I have my experience in two jurisdictions at this point uh, Vermont and San Francisco so been i'm curious to see what other offices do so you made a reference a little while ago to how how something was working pre-covid <laughs> implying that it's different so any anybody who's paid attention to the news over the last even 10 years let alone the last two you've heard a lot about forensic pathology from the opioid crisis gun violence you know police involved violence and of course covid so can you, can you talk a little bit about how some of those things have impacted forensic pathology? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think most systems in America, you are, you could easily argue were strained before the pandemic, whether you want to talk about healthcare, education, you know, nobody was doing as well as I think we'd like to pretend we're doing as a nation. Um, and certainly that is felt in forensics where we have what somewhere maybe around 400 people to do the job of 1200. And that was pre pandemic. Um, so I'll use Chicago as an example, since I know our numbers. So 2019, we had around 6,000 deaths. That's pretty standard. Um, there is a standard, you know, a little less than 1% of the population um, dies per year. Um, yes, there has been an increase in suicide and opioid overdoses, but between 2019 and 2020, we went from 6,000 to 16,000 cases in one year. Now, granted, 8,000 of those were COVID-related deaths, but that remaining was a 50% increase in homicides and a 40% increase in overdose deaths, which is drastic, right? That's oh, incredible. That's so crazy. And that's, you know, and I think you know, it's all related, right? We all feel we, at some point during this quarantine, we have felt anxious and or depressed um, and so you have people, uh, and now, you know, things are opening up and we're seeing these crimes, these homicides where people just have a short fuse and they just snap and they're killing people over very small things. Like you cut me off in traffic or you stepped on my shoe, you know? So, um, a strained system, I think is a little more strained right now. Um, but we're getting through, but oh. I think every office has been, um, it's been an onslaught, you know, I think, you know, you look at our clinical counterparts, you know, they had it rough, I, you know, early in COVID and some of the surges, but there were breaks. And I think for a lot of our offices, there haven't been breaks. It's just been increasing. Um, and we've been shifting from COVID deaths to now these accidental deaths, which I think part is self-medication. And I think part is supply chain, just like uh, lumber supply, everything has changed. So there's more fentanyl in these drugs and fentanyl analogs and people are taking cocaine or heroin thinking they're doing that and it's like straight fentanyl and they're dying 
Um, so it's, it's been bad. I know a lot of people um, haven't really even had a vacation um, since the pandemic started in these offices. So it's been busy. So did you guys do, obviously you had 8,000 COVID deaths. Did you guys just swab and move on? So yeah, let me uh, clarify those 8,000. So um, like we said before, everything is dependent on where you are. So when I was in New Mexico, so there are two types of COVID deaths, right? The attended deaths that occur in the hospitals or your nursing homes. Those we are doing um, by mandate of, I think, a public health mandate because we're in a state of emergency. We are reviewing all of those for, as medical record reviews. So, and that's part, um, I think we all heard, you know, all the politicals, uh, politicalization of everything, but um, to kind of ensure people's deaths are properly certified and people aren't calling this a COVID related death when it's actually a death due to something else. So that's something our office specifically has taken on. Um, we fall under Cook County and that's what they want us to do. I think there are only a few other offices in the nation that did that. I think we're one of the few that are still doing that. And then you have the deaths that occur at home. So the people who are sick, never went to the hospital, die at home. Uh, those we're doing by usually a swab um, and then an x-ray or CT, depending on the day and the comfort level of the forensic pathologist. Back in New Mexico, where I was for fellowship, they CT scan everyone. They're also a biosafety uh, level three laboratory. So they were, it was a great place to be when this pandemic hit because they are built for respiratory pathogens and highly infectious diseases. So conversely there, these people that died at home in the community, we did full autopsies on all of them just in our isolation suites. But that was one of few offices that was able to do that. Did the numbers bump there as much? Like... Uh, I doubt. Well, I doubt as much because a large uh, a large bump in that number was all those record reviews we were doing that most people aren't doing. Um, I I don't know their numbers off the top of my head. Um, I was reading an article. I want to say in the New York Times a while ago, and they were reporting how drastically homicides have increased all across the nation. I mean, that's everywhere. Um, Chicago is definitely one of the worst. I think it's arguably the worst major city. Um, and I think a lot of that is gun laws and gun laws in our surrounding states. They're very lax. You can go to Indiana, you can go to Wisconsin. Uh, you know, it's a 30 minute drive, depending on where you are, load up and come back. Um, so it's, it's been bad here. And I think part of that too, of course, with the pandemic, a lot of law enforcement agents, you know, they didn't, for infectious disease risks, you know, they were not on the street as much and not pulling people over. And so with their decreased presence, I think there was an uptick in uh, gun related crimes, whether it's gang or, and or drug related. So I think it was just the perfect storm for uh, really bad outcomes. Thank you, that's really interesting. I know that San Francisco was like swabbing before an autopsy, but then still often doing the autopsy. So like I was there in September, COVID September um, for, yeah. We've only had one COVID September so far. I forget how long we've actually been in it. Um, and like, you know, we found out a couple days later, oh, by the way, that that patient that you did, or that decedent had COVID. And like, of course you wear N95s and face masks and all that other stuff. Um, but it was definitely one of those, like you find after the fact, like, you know, you have their fresh lungs in front of you that you're like, that you're cutting and you're like, oh no, those were COVID lungs. It was definitely, different <laughs> yeah Every our week. office just took the protocol i think because we we're just such a high volume office to Makes default sense. we would swab and we would hold the body if they were uh, younger under a certain age um, if they were older and had natural disease we would release the body and wait for the swab but just there's just so many people coming through this office um, for our safety that was our protocol and i'm, I'm happy we have that yeah. that makes sense it was also interesting like um, oh shoot, sorry, I had an, I had something that I was gonna say that my brain just stopped. Um, it's the heat. Jordan X stopped working. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, I remember now. Um, it's been interesting because a lot of, obviously, like, friends are also doctors in other specialties, like friends from med school and whatnot. And it's been interesting hearing, you know, what their various residencies prioritize for the COVID vaccine and a lot of places like put pathology kind of at the end of it. But what a lot of people don't 
like people kind of rule out the medical examiner side of it. And yeah, the surgical pathologist that is only looking at slides might never talk to a patient who has COVID and might not risk exposure. But forensic pathology has arguably as high, if not higher exposure than a lot of other fields, like, you know, cutting fresh COVID lungs. So it was definitely interesting when the vaccine came out thinking about prioritization and how forensic pathology should actually be right up there with some of these other ones. So it was kind of interesting. So you touched a little bit on gun violence, and, and I wonder, with the background in public health that you have, Dr. Jackson, what, what do you see as the role of forensic pathologists in contributing to that discussion? Sure. I think, you know, I think we should be at the forefront of that discussion and in lobbying for better gun laws. Um, I think like many things, as, as I shared already, we're such a strange system. So in reality, you know, we're juggling uh, record-breaking caseload, trying to turn those cases around. Because again, on the other side of this death certificate are families that are grieving, families that are awaiting insurance checks to move on with their lives, you know, parents that are now suddenly single parents. So you, you want to have your cases turned around so those people can move forward with their lives. And it's getting hard because you can only juggle so much realistically and still have time to take care for yourself. But ideally, I would like to see us and myself included be at the forefront of these discussions with the government, whether that's on a local level or, um, you know, a national level. But I mean, who better to speak on it? I think there should be, I would love to see emergency docs, um, surgeons, trauma care, ICU, and forensics all come together as a force um, for that personally, because I think we all have a lot to say about that and how much it dominates um, so much of what we do, which no one minds doing, but it, it's a resource thing, right? Those cases take more time. Um, those are families that are, you know, grieving. Um, and so many are, I it's just, I just wish we didn't have such easy access to guns and they're getting, they're getting worse. I was just reading an article where locally there's some new gun. I'm not a gun expert. I'm sorry, but there's some cartridge you can add that can suddenly, you know, instead of shooting, I don't know, 20 shots, uh, rapid fire 60. Um, but apparently it's so high power, you, you lose accuracy. So you're increasing the risk of shooting, you know, a bunch of innocent bystanders. And it just seems to get worse. I don't really know how to make these lawmakers care more about their constituents and the people they're supposed to serve. But I do see a role for us. Um, I hope things slow down so people can really delve into those interests they have. But right now, I think everyone's just in a survival mode. Well, there's definitely been a lot of education of the public in the last year around high-profile cases of police-involved shootings, a lot of education of the public around the mechanism of death and manner of death and how those are different. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those differences for us here. Um, so yeah, the main job of the forensic pathologist is to determine cause and manner of death and mechanism kind of falls in there with cause those are the two that get confused a lot well i guess they all get confused a lot <laughs> but essentially <laughs> cause of death is the injury or disease or combination of the two um, that initiates a cascade of events that leads to the person's death um, and then mechanism is the physiologic or biochemical disturbance that occurs because of that cause that leads to death so um, it can, the, the mechanism can sometimes be written on the death certificate, but it isn't ever the only thing that should be written on a death certificate. So like cardiopulmonary arrest is not a cause of death. That is like the definition of death. Your heart <laughs> and lungs have stopped doing yeah. stuff. Well, one, <laughs> one definition of, yes. of death, because brain death is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> um, but like exsanguination is a mechanism, so massive blood loss. And exsanguination could be due to any number of things. Like you could have a ruptured ulcer that causes you to bleed out, a gunshot wound to your aorta that causes you to bleed out, etc. And then manner is the circumstances surrounding the death. And those generally, that falls into five different categories that we get to choose from. So natural, homicide, suicide, accident, and undetermined when we don't have sufficient evidence to assign a different circumstance. Um, and so I feel like a lot of people, like on the podcast we listen to, they'll be like, and the cause was murder. And it's like, murder is not even a manner of death. <laughs> homicide, death at the hands of another. 
Um, but murder is like more of a, a law term that people can use to prosecute and determine sentencing in in cases of homicide. And I think that's one of the terms that also gets the most confused is it'll be a homicide and then somebody will be like, oh, I shouldn't air quotes homicide. It would be called a homicide, <laughs> but somebody would take that as like, oh, somebody murdered them. It's like, no, when we say homicide, homicide just means death at the hands of another. That's it. It could have been, it still could have been due to, it could be due to murder, but it also could be like accidental in a way that we wouldn't call accident, but it's still death at the hands of another. So it's called a homicide. So, you know, it's not necessarily intentional, but homicide is just death at the hands of another. And a lot of people don't understand that part. Yeah. And manner can sometimes be confused because it's very subjective. It's a little bit more subjective um, and office dependent sometimes. Um, and so like general conventions for us, like motor vehicle collisions, we'll call accidents, even if sometimes you could maybe think, oh, but it, if it was a DUI, then that's a death at the hands of another potentially, you know? So. But then there is the thing of like, you know, somebody took their car and ran over that person on purpose. That would then be a homicide, but you would need to have the background for it. Otherwise, it's an accident. So. It can be a little wishy-washy, but yeah. And the circumstances a lot of times depends more on the scene findings yep. than on the autopsy findings, yeah. which is why you have those death investigators that are well-trained to know what to look for and what to take photos of and what information to communicate to you. And then we talked about the coroner medical examiner thing earlier. So the cause of death, which is, you know, the injury or event leading up to the death is always essentially always determined by a forensic pathologist. The manner of death in a medical examiner system is determined by the medical examiner. But in a sheriff coroner system or a coroner system, it is often determined by the coroner. I'm not going to say always because down in Santa Cruz, apparently it's, it's a coroner system, but the medical examiner still says what the manner is. But usually in coroner systems, the coroner determines the manner, which can then, that's where it gets a little iffy in the sheriff coroner systems in like, you know, Let's say it's an officer involved death in a jail. They might be like, well, it was an accident. He was chokehold to death because it was an accident versus a medical examiner would be like, no, that's a homicide. It was death literally at the hands of another or arm of another. Um, yeah, but, in San Joaquin County, where I was shadowing Dr. O'Malley, it was a sheriff coroner's office, as yeah. I mentioned before. And that's actually the reason why he left was because the sheriff in a lot of um, officer involved deaths was determining them as accident instead of homicide even if it was like clearly would have been called a homicide by a medical yeah. examiner uh yeah he and dr parsons the other forensic pathologist there left at the same time for that reason and now it's a medical examiner system um, because there was a big outcry from the public about it and so the government officials switched over yeah and i, I agree with everything that's stated a few little points um, I believe in New York and a few other places, there's another uh, manner of death, which would be complications of therapeutic intervention. So people that go to the hospital die after some procedure, some operation. Um, they have a separate manner. Most places, unless, you know, the surgeon or whoever was clearly negligent and doing something they shouldn't have been, it's usually classified as a natural death. Um, and then the other point, what did I want to say? Oh, so some of those more complicated cases that can go either way, what most offices do, you're not acting in isolation. Usually there's a consensus conference or a difficult case conference where you sit, you present the case to the whole office or whoever's there for the day, and then people weigh in because it can be complicated sometimes. Sometimes it is not straightforward. It's actually, I think those are some of the more interesting cases and I mean, there's a lot of things that are complicated in forensics, but we also have a, there's a listserv among medical examiners. And when a lot of people start to weigh in, there are a lot of strong opinions in any field and forensics is not excluded from that. And so some people are uh, more old school. Some people are uh, more willing to change with the times. And there's a lot of strong opinions from different people on what is appropriate, especially I feel in the mannering, which you wouldn't think would be the most complicated thing, but a lot of people have very strong feelings. <laughs> well, I can only imagine. I mean, there's strong feelings on these types of issues from everyone involved, from you know, the lay public to the media and families, obviously. What advice would you give to folks in training who are 
just trying to get to residency or if they're thinking about going into a career in forensics? Uh, my advice would be if you're interested in forensics, you're definitely a welcoming field. We want people who want to be forensic pathologists. I'd say wherever you are, you know, if you don't have a strong autopsy service, reach out to your local medical examiner or coroner's office. Usually somebody there would be more than happy to have you come in, meet you, shadow, um, hook you up with some research project and abstract to present something. Um, and if you don't, I'm pretty sure any of us would be happy for you to reach out to us on social media and see what we can do to either link you into something we're working on or someone we know in the area. It's a very small community. So chances are we can find someone nearby that can help you uh, reach your dreams. But yeah, we we're happy to help you. We did actually did a really fun episode on like um, the training and stuff you need to eventually become a forensic pathologist. And it definitely starts with your interest early on, but you know, take a lot of science early on try to take anatomy if you can because every anatomy course is going to help um and just keep that interest alive there's a lot of people that are going to try to pull you away um but if you find it interesting there is always somebody out there that wants to help you we all know that we need more medical examiners in the field and we are always happy to help um bring up those groups and we can tell you from personal experience putting some of that forensic pathology interest into your um, personal statements for med school and residency do help. So if you show that you have an interest in something that can kind of help you get yourself down the pathway from those earlier steps. Yeah, I often had a lot of interviews where they were just like, we read your personal statement, tell me more about forensics. Yeah, I was like, same. great, this is what I would like to talk about rather than what my strengths and weaknesses are. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just I can't say anything more than what Dr. Jackson and Jordan said um, mentorship was what got me to this place like having people reach out and be very supportive of my interests and I'm definitely the same way there was a um, a college student who a, a co-resident of ours connected me to and I helped her to get a shadowing opportunity at the Santa Clara County office so I'm definitely always willing to help people in the field the way that I was helped. I just want to pay it forward. and Same-sies. I want to decrease my workload in the future by having <laughs> more people coming in. Well, I really enjoyed talking with all of you. And thank you so much for joining me to share about forensic pathology. And I, I hope this will be a great resource for people that are thinking about it as a career. So thanks for being on PathPod. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this thank was you. fun. It's nothing I love to talk about more. <laughs> Except maybe Harry Potter. Oh, it's true. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.